So firstly, reading from Exodus chapter 20 and verses 1 to 17. This is God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who was within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honour your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbours. Amen. And then flipping forward to the New Testament and to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 22 and reading from verse 34 to verse 40. This is in a, a series of questions that Jesus is fielding uh, from different religious groups. Matthew chapter 22 Starting reading at verse 34. This is God's word. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Amen. And we thank God for his blessing through his truth. I'm going to think about the law of God, but before we do, let's ask for God's help in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have spoken to us 
We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We thank you that in the scriptures you teach us everything that we are to believe about you and all the duty that you require of us. So we pray this evening as we think upon your law, as we think upon what the law means for us today, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. Would you illuminate our minds so that we might understand what you're teaching us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, questions are often asked of Christians in today's society about the law of God. Uh, People like to try and poke holes in our religion by questioning, why is it that Christians follow some of the Old Testament law? They, They forbid certain things, but they allow others. For example, why is it that we're opposed to adultery? Not any sex outside the marriage of a man and a woman, but we're not opposed to eating shellfish, as per Leviticus chapter 11. We're not opposed to wearing garments of mixed fabric, Leviticus chapter 19. And I've often heard that used as an argument, a bit of a gotcha for Christians in the media. So do we pick and choose? Are we being hypocritical in following some laws from the Old Testament and not following others? And then further to this, the question we as Christians might ask is, we are people who live by grace, aren't we? We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We've had our sins removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Why is it that we actually care about the law of God at all? Surely we're not under law. Romans 6, 14 tells us we're under grace. Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says, we have been delivered from the law. So what place does it actually play in the life of a Christian? Because as well as what we've just said from Romans, we also know Romans chapter 3, verse 31 says, do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Not to mention wonderful words such as our call to worship this evening, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. So there seems to be conflicting messages. And let's face it, if we as Christians are confused about these things, we can only imagine how that comes across to a watching world. Our faith is strengthened by a better understanding of God and his word. And it helps us in our witness to unbelievers who might ask us for the hope that is within us. To begin to think about these things in our Sunday evening services, I want to take us all the way back to the book of Exodus, to the Ten Commandments. We're going to take each one of those Ten Commandments and break it down. And we're going to see how it's both convicting and instructive for us as God's people. But as I've said, even better than that, I, will, I hope we will see that the Ten Commandments are Christ-centered. They point us to Jesus because he is the only one who fully and truly embodies the law of God. So let me begin this evening by answering the shellfish question. 
and in a way explaining why it is that we're going to focus on just the Ten Commandments at the expense of lots of laws in the Old Testament, dozens if not hundreds of other commandments found there. It's well accepted and understood in the Reformed Church that there are three different types of law given in the Old Testament. These three categories have been identified as the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The Westminster Confession explains this helpfully for us. You see, there are laws in the Old Testament that were meant for the nation of Israel as a nation. And so those laws are no longer abiding. In other words, there are laws in the Bible that are not for us today, not for our obedience today. Things like we have mentioned, things like eating shellfish or pork, not mixing fabrics, not cutting the corners of your beard, not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. There are some things in the Old Testament that we don't even think about today. On top of all those there are things like ritual sacrifices. We don't come to church to burn offerings to God, do we? And yet they're commanded in the Old Testament. There's also cleansing rituals and, and barring sanitizing our hands because of or, or since uh, the start of the COVID pandemic. We don't worry so much about those cleansing rituals. These are examples of the civil and the ceremonial law. They were given to the nation or the people of Israel. They were given for a number of reasons. And there is wisdom in these laws. There is wisdom to be found in knowing the laws and understanding why they were given. The ceremonial law was primarily given to teach about cleanliness, demonstrating the inward reality of having a clean heart before God, the, the need to have our sins forgiven. The civil law, well, it primarily was given to establish Israel as a nation and in particular to make sure they were different from the surrounding nations, to distinguish them. They were not to be like the other people groups. They were God's chosen and special people. They were meant to be different. Now, these types of law, the civil and the ceremonial, are not to be ignored. Like I say, there is wisdom, there's teaching in these. And they guided and led the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And it's important that we see that and understand that. Where they become really useful to us as Christians is how they point us to Christ. They teach us that we need to be forgiven our sin. And so they point us to Christ as the only one who can forgive our sin. They teach us that the nation of Israel needed to be different and so they teach us as Christians we are to be different and distinct from the world around us. They do teach us about Christ's kingdom and his worship. They are God's word and we do not ignore them. But they're not abiding. We, we don't have to keep them in our lives. And so when people think they've defeated Christianity with this argument that Christians think adultery is wrong, but you're okay with a bacon sandwich. Well, they haven't quite understood the Bible. And isn't that what Satan would do? Satan would twist God's word. He would take the truth and he would twist it. 
And people do that to try and meet their own ends. Eating a bacon sandwich is a pleasure. And we can enjoy it under Christian liberty. And in a way then it is glorifying to God for Christ coming as the fulfilment of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Enjoy your bacon sandwiches. But I don't want us to focus on the ceremonial or the civil law this evening. And over the course of these evenings, I want our focus to be the moral law. Because the moral law is something that is lasting. It is abiding. And it's not just abiding for Christians. It's a, it's a law for all human beings everywhere. The moral law is written on our hearts. The Bible is very clear that when God created Adam and Eve, they were created in his image. And as such, they had the ability to tell right from wrong. And so when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the image of God wasn't destroyed, but it was marred. So think of like the image you would see in a cracked mirror or a foggy mirror. The image is there, but it's distorted. You can't quite make it out. It's not clear. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament makes it plain that all people have the knowledge of God, the moral law, written in our hearts, although it is corrupted by sin. So we do know the difference between right and wrong. Paul says the truth is in us, but it has been suppressed in unrighteousness. So the moral law is in our hearts but it's also given in the scriptures so that we may know precisely what God requires of each one of us. The Westminster Confession of Faith teaches that the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. That makes the Ten Commandments really important all of a sudden, especially for us as Christians. What do the commandments teach? They teach us what God wants for each one of our lives. The commandments are a summary of God's will for all people living in his world. By knowing the commandments and by obeying them, we can know that we are living within the will of God. The Ten Commandments are not a complete statement of the moral law, but they are a summary. And over these evening services, we're going to unpack them. And we're going to see that within each commandment, there's actually much more contained than just the bare bones. For example, when we read, you shall not murder, there's more to that than just not going out and killing somebody. It's a summary of many other things. It would even compel us to feed and to clothe the poor. That's a, an, an outworking of the commandment not to murder. Now you will know, you'll be aware that the Ten Commandments themselves are divided into two sections, two tables. The first four commandments deal with our duty towards God and the second table deals with our duty toward other people. Of course, Jesus himself offered a very short summary of the moral law and we might call it the law of love. We read it earlier from Matthew chapter 22. A teacher of the law asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So you remember what the Beatles said? All you need is love. The law of love is that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. That is the first table of the Ten Commandments. Summarised by Jesus. Love. Love God. And then also we love our neighbour as ourselves. That's the second table. Jesus gave these two general and simple principles to govern our lives. And in doing so, he, he summarised everything. He says oh, the whole law and, and prophets hang on this. He summarised the revealed will of God, which all people everywhere in all times are bound to do. Every single person who ever lived should love God and love their neighbour. Now, I don't want to overburden you with threes. It seems to be a theme, but I've got another three for you. There are traditionally three ways that the moral law has been understood in the Reformed Church. And these are what I want to kind of focus on this evening, but I, I don't have a huge amount more to say, to be honest. These answer that question, the question from the start of the sermon. Why is it that we as people who have been saved by grace, why do we still care and want to keep the law of God? I've given these three R's and even assigned one a picture to help the visual learners among us. So the first use of the law is that it restrains evil. And the picture I want you to think of is a dog on a lead. The lead restrains the dog from wandering off. The, the dog can't go wherever it wishes to go. It can only go where the lead lets it. So since all people have this moral law summarised in the Ten Commandments, further summarised by Jesus, since we have it written on our hearts, and deep down we do know the difference between good and evil, that means evil is restrained. We're not as evil as we might be. Some people are more evil than others, yes, but all the same, it is restrained. Deep down, everybody in the world knows that we must love God and love our neighbour. Just think about the world that we live in and compare it to, say, chimps or lions. Think about our society compared to those societies. People in our society don't just run around shouting at each other and, and killing each other all the time. There's a reason why, despite the, the decline in society, there is moral outrage every year, it seems. We'll wait and see if it's the case this year. But those who participate in Strictly Come Dancing have these extramarital affairs and it's on the front pages of the newspapers. People aren't happy about it because deep down we know that that's not right. There's a reason why very few people just walk into a shop and lift things and put it in their pockets and walk out again without paying. That doesn't happen that often. We don't see looting on our streets. Our entire judicial system is based upon the premise that actions have consequences. There is a difference between right and wrong. 
This line is known to us. It's blurred. It's a blurry line because we are fallen, sinful human beings. But it is known to us. The world, while it is wicked and depraved, is not as wicked and depraved as it might be. The law, God's law, restrains evil. And I think this is a great apologetic tool. If you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian, and imagine somebody who just can't believe in God because of the presence of evil in the world. Well, the question has to be asked of that person, how do you know what is good and what is evil? If there's no God, if there's no moral law, then surely survival of the fittest means I can kill anybody weaker than me without any guilt or any fear of consequence. It's not evil, it's merely survival. Why is it that we have this idea that what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine is wrong? Why is it not just okay? He's just conquering some land, right? But we know that it's evil. Because deep down within us, every person in the world knows that survival of the fittest is is, is not right. God has written this law on our hearts. That's the first use of the law. It restrains evil. And we all know it deep down. The second use of the law is that it reveals our sinfulness. And the picture here to think of is a torch or a lamp. We have an idea of what is right and wrong, but we don't always stick to that, do we? In fact, if we're honest, we fall very short. We are sinners after all. If I asked you, do you actually love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind and all of your strength? Do you love your neighbour as yourself? Well, you and I would have to admit, wouldn't we, that we don't even come close. And that highlights our sin. It shows us our sin. The law of love shows us personally just how sinful we are, how how far short we fall of the moral standard God requires of us. It shows us that we're dead in our transgressions. And remember, that's what sin is, isn't it? The, The Shorter Catechism, question 14. The children know this. Sin is any want of conformity onto or transgression of the law of God. Children might not understand it, but they maybe can rhyme off the words. It means if you break the law in even the smallest way, or if you refuse to become like what the law requires of you, if you refuse to conform to it in even the smallest way, then you've broken all of it. And that deserves death. This use of the law highlights our need of a saviour. It shows us just how much we need Jesus. Because he kept it perfectly. We need Jesus. We need his entire, exact, perfect and perpetual obedience to the law of God. Without the obedience of Christ, we would be lost. We need Christ. So while the law does restrain evil like a dog on a lead, it also highlights evil in each one of us. It's like a torch on a dark night. The torch doesn't create the things that are in your path, but it shows them to you. The law of God shows us how far short we have fallen from God's standard. It exposes the sin which is hidden 
but it's already there in our hearts. Well, the final use of the law then is as a rule for life. And the picture we should think of as a ruler or a measure, it's the standard that we should seek to uphold in our lives, or or maybe even a, a straight edge. Those who are into woodwork or building know about straight edges. We need to seek to keep the law of God in all of our lives. Just as a ruler is straight, so we should seek to be straight. To keep God's law. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I think this is probably how most of us see the law of God. This is probably the way we most of all think of it. It's the maker's instructions. It's a box, like the instructions in a box of Lego or Ikea furniture. If we want things to work the way they're supposed to work, if we want to live within the will of God, then we keep the Ten Commandments. And that's the final use of the law of God as a rule for life. But it has to be said, and and with this I want to finish, it has to be said that this third use of the law comes only after the second. Only after we've realised our sinfulness. Only after we've come to Christ in repentance and faith and trusted in his rescue. Only then can we think about the third use of the law. Let me make this very clear. We cannot in any way earn our salvation by keeping the law of God. We can't do it. It's simply not how it works and it actually undermines God's graciousness and the death of Christ. I want to read to you again as we close what is often referred to as the preface of the Ten Commandments and that's Chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Just before the Ten Commandments, what does God say? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. We have to remember that the grace that is found in this before God gave the Ten Commandments, first of all, He rescued his people. He rescued them out of the land of Egypt and out of the slavery they were under. So it is for us. We receive the commandments out of God's grace. God's grace is given to those of us who have been rescued and redeemed from slavery to sin, from slavery to our own flesh, from slavery to the devil. God's grace is given to those who have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. And so we live lives of gratitude. Keeping the commandments out of thanksgiving. We don't seek to keep the commandments out of guilt. Somehow hoping that God will be made kindly towards us. No, we keep them out of gratitude. Because God has been kind towards us he's given us jesus christ he's given us all the benefits of jesus christ jesus christ is our lord and savior he is the one for whom we should want to keep the law of god and be made straight 
Let's pray together.